Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation. Look at the end of chapter 1 this morning. So it's uh, Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. <clears throat> Revelation is, uh, as, a, as a whole, I think, is hard for people to appreciate. It's maybe hard to understand in some ways, but hard especially to appreciate when life is easy. When uh, maybe we can't think of anybody that qualifies as an enemy, as a, a spiritual enemy that we might have. Or uh, when our Christian faith hasn't really gotten us into any trouble with the world lately. Uh, it can be really hard to appreciate the book of Revelation. Because the whole context of the book is one of tribulation. The whole book. Tribulation. But if you only think of tribulation as... Um, Maybe, uh, as you've seen popularized in some books and movies, um, as a possible future event, which obviously you would prefer to escape, then the question of the book's significance becomes really an academic one rather than uh, one with some urgency. If tribulation is just something far distant in the future that maybe I'm never going to experience. I think trying to avoid tribulation is such a strong instinct, for me anyway, that it often threatens to override my faithful witness to the gospel. Put that more simply. Basically, uh, I'm afraid of the pain that might come if I'm more vocal about my faith. If I'm more vocal about the gospel. Afraid of the pain or the conflict that might be associated with that. I think it's going to hurt. It'll make uh, relationships more difficult, or maybe it'll bring them to an end altogether. It might bring financial hardships in various ways. Uh, it might land me in prison. Um, or worse, th these things have happened. They happen on a fairly regular basis. And actually, these are realities that we can expect. The scriptures teach us to expect realities like these uh, in some form or another, some degree. But the fear, the fear should not deter us from faithfully following Jesus in this world. That's what Revelation's about. Um, following Jesus in a world that is set in opposition to him, it's a world set in opposition to his church, his people, us, sticking with Jesus when uh, we're under pressure to conform to the world, or just continuing to follow Jesus when that means conflict. Revelation's written to help us just not be afraid of that. <clears throat> someone wrestling with the reality of, of tribulations like this as an expectation for the Christian life uh, needs this vision of Jesus that John gives us here. So, uh, so that's what we'll talk about again this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, there are times in which uh, we wish your word didn't apply to us so well, or times when we uh, arrange everything in our lives in order to avoid the ramifications of living by your word, the implications of your word. Your word can be very difficult for us in many ways. We pray that you would help us by your spirit, that you would grow us into maturity that's found in Christ as we consider your word this morning. We pray that you would make us more like him. We pray for your help 
In Jesus' name, amen. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the account here of John's commissioning as a prophet. It's something like you would see actually in the books that the prophets write, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. Uh, when God commissioned those prophets and when he sent them as messengers to his people, we have accounts of that commissioning. Right? They had visions of God in his glory. They were sent out to declare to God's own people what they had seen. And they were prepared for the fact, explicitly prepared for the fact, that most people wouldn't like what they had to say. This is going to be really difficult for people to hear. John here is called to prophesy in the midst of increasing persecutions and and really, uh, when you see that this is a, a letter written to these seven churches, what he writes to these seven churches in the next couple chapters is, is to challenge them. It's to challenge them to repentance. It's to challenge them to renewed faithfulness and to perseverance, things that are difficult for them. <clears throat> it's important for John to identify himself very closely with God's people, the, the churches to whom he's writing. He wants to make it clear that he's, he's like together with them. He's in the same boat with them to call attention to their camaraderie in these trials. He calls himself your brother and partner, a partaker, fellow participant in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he's, he's writing to encourage his brothers and sisters in the churches with the knowledge that they're not alone in their trials that he participates in the same kind of life of faith that they do, 
that he's with them spiritually, even if he can't be with them physically, even if he's pretty remote and removed from them right now. How important is that? Really? Um, unfortunately, you're probably aware of what it feels like to experience difficulties in life and to feel alone. You're probably aware of what it feels like to experience difficulties yet be alone in that, alone in your struggles, alone in your troubles. The difficulties themselves that you're experiencing, they're bad enough, but it's even worse when you feel like no one understands you, no one understands what you're going through, or no one cares, no one, no one cares very much to reach out to you in your time of uh, difficulty. <clears throat> Hopefully you know the relief and the comfort of discovering that someone actually does care. Someone actually does know what you're going through. Well, John is writing deliberately to say that. He does know what it's like to have sorrows, to have troubles, to have conflicts in this world because of his being a Christian, to have troubles in the world because of his bearing faithful witness to Christ, sharing the gospel with people, and establishing churches. He knows the difficulty. In fact, he's been ex uh, exiled to this rock in the Mediterranean, right? It says uh, this island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's, you know, Patmos is a tiny island. <clears throat> it's off the coast of Turkey. We've established, uh, I think, last week in our sermon discussion. Somebody looked it up. It's, it's off the, the western coast of Turkey. I think it was just sort of a Greek uh, island. Um, it's a tiny island. Today's population is still only about 3,000 people. And apparently, John was sent there as a political exile. Not sure, uh, nobody's really sure whether this island was sort of like a, an ancient version of Australia where you, you send your, uh, your prisoners to get them out of your hair and they just can't ever find their way back. It may not have been something like that. It may be that there was like a town or a village here and they just wanted him out of their hair. And so they, they sent, him, uh, sent him there. It's banishment to a place like Patmos is what you did to someone when you didn't really need to kill them. But you didn't want to keep them long-term in a prison, because that's, I mean, it's actually expensive. But you also didn't want them going around disturbing the peace anymore. You want to get rid of them. And that's what preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is, exactly. It's disturbing the peace. It's a threat to the powers that be. God's people have always been perceived as a political threat when we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, we're taught plainly in the scriptures to expect certain kinds of reactions from people in charge, people like Herod, people like Pilate, people like Nero. And these guys were like history-making bad guys. A bad on another level, right? But it's not just them. It's not just them. <clears throat> we should not be surprised by a negative response from all kinds of people, all kinds of people in the world, who don't want us to upset the status quo of the world, the status quo of their lives with the message of the gospel that would reorient everything they believe, reorient their allegiances. When we, when we upset the status quo with our message of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and our message of the lordship of Jesus Christ, people don't want to hear it. And they react negatively in different ways. The New Testament letters 
uh, so many of them mention this, the, the, they aren't primarily given for a nice sunny holiday at the sea. Right? This is not easy light reading, the New Testament. These letters are written from prisoners. They're written from exiles. They're written from apostles who are well acquainted with suffering. To those who are facing great difficulties because of their faith in particular. It's the very nature of the scriptures to help us as we wrestle with the world's reactions to the kingdom of God and help us as we're um, uh, called to continue in our faith and our preaching even though we expect responses like this. These volatile, hostile reactions, they landed our brother John on Patmos, where one Sunday Jesus gave him a vision to sustain him, and not just to sustain him, but for us, written for our sake too. Uh, it doesn't spell it out, not exactly, but I think it's, it's actually likely that he might have had this vision during gathered worship. It says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I mean, if any of us were going to say that, if any good theologian who knows the scriptures were going to say that, would say that's probably in the context of worship. If I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, it means I'm together with my brothers and sisters in the Spirit on the day where we come together for worship. The Lord's Day, it is also called the Day of the Lord. It's Sunday. It's the day of His resurrection. That's what makes it His day. And since the Lord's resurrection, it's been the day that Christ's people come together for worship, for community, but to encourage one another, especially with the wonderful news that he has risen, that this is the day that he's made, that this is the day that belongs to him because of his resurrection. We encourage one another with these words. Being in the Spirit is more, more than just sort of a Christian language way of saying, I fell into a trance. <laughs> it's more than that. That's, not, that's probably not what it means. So it makes sense that John would have planted a church on that little island because the apostles did that everywhere they went. And why not expect that corporate worship was where Jesus met him like this? I think maybe uh, think of it that way. Imagine it that way as your uh, imagination is engaged uh, during the reading of Revelation here. <clears throat> so John, in verse 10, he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet, sort of startling and all of a sudden not, not really expected, right? So we learn that the startling voice is Jesus whom John had known intimately during his life on earth. You might be able to say of all the disciples, John was the closest, maybe, to Jesus. John had seen this one crucified. He'd seen it. Not all the disciples had seen that. He had seen Jesus in his resurrection body, which is something all the disciples had seen. And along with the other disciples, he'd seen Jesus gloriously taken up into heaven in a cloud. So he knew this Jesus. He knew him as a, as a human being. Yet his voice is likened to that of God himself. In Exodus 19, at Mount Sinai, God's people heard the sound of a trumpet growing louder and louder, and God spoke in thunder, and it was a terrifying experience for all of them. And they said, we don't ever want to experience that again, even though it was God speaking to them. <clears throat> So Jesus is the one who, on the one hand, loves to identify himself as the Son of Man. It's his favorite way of identifying himself in the Gospels, and he is called that here. Yet he's also the Son of God. He's the divine Almighty in the flesh, not someone to be taken lightly. And this Jesus, 
calls to John, and he instructs him to write down his visions and to send it to these seven churches that are in Asia Minor, modern-day western Turkey, uh, again, individually addressed in chapters 2 and 3. We'll get into that starting next week. This Jesus, he's the Lord God. This Jesus is the Lord God commissioning his prophet, sending him with his message to his people, which means God wants his people to hear his word. It's simple. He wants you to hear his word. It's a huge theme throughout the scriptures. God wants us to hear what he has to say. He thinks it would be good for us. Jesus is thinking to encourage his people with his word, and he makes arrangements for it. So John turns, and what does he see? Actually, not Jesus, not at first. It's not the first thing he sees in this vision. The first thing he sees is the lampstands, which Jesus goes on to describe. These are the churches. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven, it's again, that they're representative of all the churches. Golden, they're precious, they're beautiful, they're glorious. So Revelation is certainly a vision of Jesus, but it's also a vision of the church. The book of Revelation, what John has been commissioned to write as a prophet to God's people, to the churches, it's a vision of the church in her struggles in the world. It's a vision of the church in her victory. I think it's very interesting that when John turns to see the voice of Jesus, which is strange language, to see the voice. But when he turns to see the voice, the first thing he sees is the churches, that the voice of Jesus resounds from the churches. And that's a, that's a really strong identification between the Lord who is speaking and the church. Right? It's a very strong identification. It's like when Jesus said of himself, I'm the light of the world. And he said to his people, you're the light of the world. Because of the strong solidarity that he has declared with us. That what's true of him in this world and his relationship with God is also true of us as his people in this world. So the most significant thing that John sees when he sees the church, the thing he sees immediately that you have to say <clears throat> in this vision is that her Lord is right there with her. It's the most important thing. It's the first thing you notice. Her Lord is right there with her. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So again, um, in the Gospels, is by far Jesus' favorite self-identification, the Son of Man. That comes from a lot of places in the Old Testament, but probably one of the main ones, if not the main one, where it's strongly associated is this vision in Daniel 7, which Cheryl read as our um, Old Testament reading, where Daniel, he sees these various kingdoms. They're, they're beasts, but they're kingdoms or kings, right? He sees uh, these empires of this world, and they're all hostile to God and to his people. This is the vision that Daniel's having. And yet, God gives universal, everlasting dominion to this one like a son of man. In spite of all these raging nations, everlasting dominion is given to the one like a son of man, a mysterious figure who he actually, actually represents the saints of the Most High. When he receives the kingdom, it goes on in just a couple verses, the angel explains this vision and says, 
This is all the saints receiving the kingdom. When the Son of Man receives the kingdom. And John sees this very one, and he's transfigured. He's transfigured in a symbolic vision. I'll uh, race through these, uh, these elements of this vision, sort of connecting them to things in the Old Testament, the symbols. Verse 13, he's robed like a priest. And when it says the, ro- uh, the, the priest is robed and he has a, a sash, it says in Exodus 28, uh, he has a sash for beauty and for glory. Verse 14, his hair is white, which actually is a reference not to the Son of Man in the vision of Daniel 7. It describes God. It describes the Ancient One. He's the one with hair that's this bright, burning white. Verse 14, he sees things as they truly are. His flaming eyes. It means he looks past appearances because of the holy fire of the Spirit anointing his eyes. He sees all things. He knows all things. His feet are not literally made of bronze. This is a symbolic vision, right? So they were, in verse 15 it says, they were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So he was, this means he's strengthened by trials. That's what that picture of a furnace is. He's strengthened by trials to be able to stand all trials. His feet have been refined by trials so that he can stand like, like some of bronze pillars for legs. To endure all trials with the surest footing, never to stumble, never to fall. Verse 15, his voice was like the roar of many waters. So uh, Ezekiel uses that language and he uses it. He says it's like the sound of the Almighty, the sound of his coming. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword because he speaks the very word of God which pierces to the joint of soul and spirit. And his face was like the the sun shining in full strength which is language used in Judges to describe the friend of God, someone who's a friend of God, an Israelite warrior who is exulting in triumph. So this is quite the picture, quite the picture, the vision of this transfigured Jesus. John is giving a vision of this figure who embodies all the glories that were ever written of the Messiah, all the glories that were written of the true king of God's people, even the glories written of God himself in all the scriptures. And John had seen something like this vision before. John had seen the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured once before on a mountain with his brother James and with his friend Peter. <clears throat> there, on that mountain, Jesus' appearance had changed to become glorious in similar ways. It was a revelation of his true glory. But here, the heavenly glory is too much for him. Too much for John, and uh, he passes out. Specific language is used. It's important to say, like a dead man. But basically, he's passing out, falling down at his feet. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <clears throat> so that's a common response to when you're just seeing an angel. <laughs> just seeing an angel, right? Let alone when you're seeing God himself in the flesh with the curtains pulled back to reveal his true and glorious nature. It's a common response. In fact, it's a perfectly appropriate response. You should have a response like this. If you don't have a response like this when you see the glorified Jesus Christ, 
I don't know what to tell you. You're going to probably have a response like this. Uh, it's, it's appropriate. Of all the things that you could be afraid of in the world, of all the things, you should fear the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. But at the same time, Jesus says to him, do not fear. This is the same Jesus John has known. He knows that Jesus loves him. Actually, he refers to himself all the time in the, in the gospel as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, uh, he knows he loves him. And so we can trust that Jesus hasn't just bowled him over just to terrify him. He helps him to his feet. Like bringing a dead man to life with a word. He reassures him. And he charges him with his prophetic task. So, we can't talk about all the details of this yet. Uh, maybe we'll come back to some of these next week. Um, or in following weeks, but in order to finish out, I think, most of the details of this passage, I actually want to return briefly to the subject of Christ's transfiguration. His transfiguration, the event that was recorded in the synoptic Gospels, you can find them in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be eyewitnesses of his majesty when he received honor and glory from God the Father. And uh, Peter writes about that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, And this is what's tremendously important for us. And I think any time you read about the transfiguration, you need to think about this, especially as we're here seeing a vision of the transfigured Christ. Um, this This is very important to remember about that occasion. In each of these Gospels, it's not just the story of they went up on a mountain and had this crazy experience because Jesus was dazzling and brilliant in his glory. It's the context. Here's the run-up in the storytelling of each of the Gospels' accounts of the Transfiguration. First, Jesus foretold his death. He foretold his death and his resurrection. Then, Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Which, of course, made his disciples uncomfortable. These are difficult words for them to hear. And they resisted. And then he was revealed to them in his true glory. So sometimes we might think that the Jesus of the Gospels, you read about him, he's the humble Jesus. He's vulnerable. He's self-sacrificial. He's real softy. But... When you get to Revelation, the Jesus of the vision here, he's majestic. He's invincible. He's authoritative and powerful, and he has a real hard edge to him. But it's the same Jesus. And it always has been. And you see that just in the Gospels. It's the humble, self-sacrificial Jesus who's talking about his own death, talking about the life that's cruciform, that he is living, that he calls his disciples to live with him and after him. The humble, self-sacrificial Jesus, who really is the glorious Jesus, who's transfigured on that mountain. He's the same one. He's the one who really is revealed to be this overwhelming Lord of the lampstands here. And he's giving this vision to John to say that his earthly life, which you can read about in the Gospels, His earthly life, which is characterized by faithfulness to God, 
culminating in his crucifixion, the same kind of life that he calls his people to follow in when he says, take up your cross and follow me, this is revealed to be the truly majestic life. His life is revealed to be the truly triumphant life. True glory isn't found in an easy life devoid of suffering. It's not. Where everything's just a victory. It isn't even found in just some sort of generic hard life. True glory is found in the cruciform life of Jesus Christ. It's a life filled with sorrows and with conflict because of his faithful proclamation of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says that he's the living one. He's only the living one because he first died. He was faithful to God. He gave his life for love. He gave himself for his people. He died on the cross. And now, behold, he is alive forevermore with the keys of death and Hades precisely because of his absolute God-centered humility, because of his self-sacrificial love. He's the true king because of his willingness to become vulnerable. He's the true king because of his ability to suffer and die for the salvation of his people. He's the true king because he wanted to spare us from eternal death, and he made arrangements to spare us from eternal death through his own death. And he calls us to participate in this life, this truly majestic life, his truly triumphant life. It is, verse 9, the, the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So it isn't just delightful, pretty, nice, sweet, easy things that are in Jesus. In Jesus are trials. In Jesus is the terrible furnace of refining. In Jesus are relational, financial, and legal problems. In Jesus are 40 lashes and stonings and crosses. In Jesus are tribulations like Nero looking at faithful Christians and mocking them, saying, So, you say you want to be the light of the world, eh? String them up, boys. Light them on fire for these garden parties. But the true Lord is right in the midst of his lampstands. He's right in the midst of his churches. He's right with, uh, with his people. He's with us. He's made his sufferings ours. And he's made our sufferings his. Now, I don't mean that when you suffer um, for something that you're, you're mistaking for Christianity, when you suffer for being a self-righteous, antagonistic, condemning person who just likes to fight. But when you suffer as a Christian, when you suffer as a Christian for your faithful testimony to Christ, for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever your troubles are, they're not a sign that Jesus has forsaken you. Or that Jesus is maybe not truly the Lord after all. G.K. Beale says that the, the mystery that Christ reveals here to John is the reality that his rule coexists with the sufferings of the churches. This is, in fact, the mystery of the cross 
the same mystery by which Christ himself, though the creator of the universe, had to submit to the power of death. So when we experience conflict in this world, because of our faith, then it's a sign that he has shared his true majesty with us. It's a sign to us that he's shared his true triumph with us. He has told us that we're the light of the world, that we should follow him in bearing faithful witness to the gospel of gracious salvation, the gospel of, of renewed relationship, eternal life with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when that testimony gets us into trouble with others in this world, which it does, even if our enemies do their absolute worst, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. And he merely turns the keys and from death he unlocks eternal life. And from Hades he unlocks the glories of heaven. Because more significant than, than even John, Pastor John, John the Apostle, the great John, more significant than, than him identifying himself as our brother and our partner in these sufferings, Jesus identifies himself with us as our brother and our partner in these sufferings. It's the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Someone does care. And someone does understand. It's the Lord himself in the midst of his lampstands. It's why he's commissioned the prophet to write this to us so that we might have the relief and the comfort of knowing that he is with us. He is with us. Our troubles are where the Lord's presence and his solidarity with us become most significant to us and become most dear to us. So don't let the fear of pain or the fear of conflict deter you from faithfully following the Lord Jesus in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that suffering in itself um, is no good. It's not beautiful. It's not a pleasant thought for anyone. But um, tribulations that are in Christ, the kingdom that's in Christ, the patient endurance that's in Christ, these things we can imagine having glory and beauty and substance and even goodness because of Christ. And so we pray that as we do live in this world with you and for you, even given the privilege of representing you in this world, being like you in such ways that people can see your life at work in our lives. And as we're given this great privilege, also recognizing that it comes with things like misunderstanding and rejection and conflict and pain, we pray that you would strengthen us with this vision of Jesus, the one who can never be removed from his throne, whose kingdom will never be shaken, who stands all trials, who has received all glory, that he is with us, that his sufferings have become our sufferings, and our sufferings have become his, and that in this solidarity we find life, and we find even joy, and hope, and peace, reassurance, comfort, and relief, no matter what others might say or do, 
in ways that affect our lives. Um, you have spoken, and your word to us is good. So we pray that it would help us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.